Hi, everyone. Welcome to Waste 360's Nothing Wasted podcast. On every episode, we invite the most interesting people in waste, recycling, and organics to sit down with us and chat candidly about their thoughts, their work, this unique industry, and so much more. So thanks for listening and enjoy this episode. Hi there. We are excited to bring you another fantastic session from Waste Expo. This one is called CFO Insights, a look at the waste and recycling industry. You'll get a rare and candid look at the industry from a financial perspective, from some of the brightest minds in waste and recycling. Enjoy this episode and thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to the CFO Insights panel. My name is Alia and I'll be moderating the session today. So let's go ahead and get into our questions. I want to start with just a general State of the Union question, and maybe, Davina, you could kick us off. But given that what we're seeing is perhaps some of the healthiest, the best health and the solid waste business that we've seen, and everyone on this panel has been a member of the waste industry for a while, and they've kind of seen it evolve and go through all these changes. So my question for you is, what do you think has contributed to today's strength? So um, it, it's a great question. I think to start with, you're exactly right. This is the best shape that the industry's been in, I know, in my career uh, with waste management. I, I think we often say garbage is good, but I, I don't think that's a strong enough statement these days. Garbage really is great, and I think the industry's in the best health that I've ever seen, and it's really a great time to be in the business. I, I think the things that I have observed and that have contributed to the strength that we're enjoying today are a focus on people, a focus on process, um, and then thinking about our responsibility as environmental stewards and customer service um, people who provide an essential business function to our neighborhoods and our communities. You know, the thing from a finance perspective that I've most enjoyed from a change perspective since I've been at Waste Management is I can tell you early on, I think finance was viewed as a compliance function and a keep the lights on part of the business. And we've come a really long way as, as a function. And today we serve as important business partners and our operations partners view us as an integral part of their team and uh, really important and insightful individuals who bring a lot to the table and help them make great business decisions. And that's a, that's a long time coming. I think it's not happened overnight, but it's something for us to be proud of. For the industry more broadly, I, I think the thing that I walked away from this morning's awards breakfast with, and I don't know how many of you were at the awards breakfast, but this industry is about people and relationships, and that has not changed. And, and I think that that really provides a solid foundation for us. What's so exciting is I think in the past we were hesitant to embrace change and innovation because it was about potentially disrupting what has made this industry so fantastic. And now I think we know that we can do both. We can embrace who we are and the people and the relationships that make this business so strong, but we can also think about where we're heading as an industry and the responsibility we have to think bigger, broader, in a more innovative way. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So are there any opportunities that you're excited about for the future of the industry? Oh, 
too many to count. I mean, I really do think that, like I said, I, I think it begins and ends with people and at waste management, um, having a leadership team that is truly embracing and talking people first means we're in a different place as a team today, um, building upon a culture that's fantastic, but, but taking it even further to continue to drive ourselves as an organization that just looks um, to serve our employees first, but know that by serving our employees, we serve our customers and then our shareholders. That's great. So, Alia, can I chime in? Yeah, of course. So, your question was, what have we observed over the you know last X number of years in our career in the waste industry? And one thing that is really impressive to me that has really been driven home during this expo so far is safety and the unified approach that we have to safety. So, I first started in 2002, and in my role, I wasn't... Safety wasn't, I was in accounting, right, and finance, so I didn't hear a lot about safety. Uh, but as I've progressed through my career, it is so impressive to me how, while we can be super competitive about everything else that we do, I'm going to take your volume. <laughs> uh, when it comes to safety, we have such a unified approach. You know, if there's ever a fatality in the industry, everybody gets a report, everybody knows about it and talks about it learns the root cause and goes back to their teams so we can make each other better and stronger and not repeat the same mistakes. I think we've come a long way in safety and it's, it's very impressive. I would echo those comments and, and I also see safety as an opportunity and I think that we as an industry, particularly given the challenges on the labor side, would serve ourselves well to make it clear how well we have improved as, as, a un, as an industry in terms of safety and what a priority it is. As you say, Diana, across the board, we're all, you know, it's the same consistent message. I know at Waste Connections, where culture has been a huge focus for the past dozen years, what you can see in terms of the tangible results from really creating, in, in our case, a servant leadership-driven culture is improvement in safety. And so it's not as though it's a bad decision or the wrong decision in terms of the financial results, but it's also, of course, the most important decision that we focus on making sure that our employees come home in the same condition they leave every morning. So I agree with your observation, and I think it's a huge opportunity for us as, as an industry, particularly given the fact that we have challenges on the labor side, and making this an, an attractive industry for, among other people, women to get involved in would serve us well. Absolutely. And from my vantage point, <clears throat> I echo all the same points that the other panelists have mentioned, but regulatory oversight and uh, keeping the assets we have and developing new assets is becoming more challenging by the month. And we have such a capital intensive business where we've invested millions and hundreds of millions and even billions of dollars with some of the businesses here in key assets to support our communities and our customers. And it's interesting to sit in that point because it's really, um, we're an invisible industry that's part of everyone's lives and touches everyone's lives. And part of it, people just don't want to talk about and think about where we want to recycle, we want to do things with organics, but landfills and waste energy plants are a real part of what we need as a society and an industry. And it's viewed as something evil and something bad, but they're managed in such a sophisticated manner. And we really are some of 
of the biggest stewards of the environment across the country and doing good. And I think if you take that and you put it across the capital intensity of what we're doing, and this team would probably agree, that that's where some of the real positive have generated as well, where the scarcity of our assets is such that we can't give it away anymore. We need to price appropriately. We need to generate appropriate returns. And I think we're all cognizant of that because it gets harder each and every day and month to operate in this business. Yeah, and so what gets you excited then about the future of the industry? Um, not just the fact that we've been focusing on people, not just the fact that it's that we're focusing on safety, but what we can do in the future uh, with uh, uh, the role that we play, would play in pub public uh, stewardship in really driving sustainability. We're kind of at the tip of that spear there and making sure that we're partnering with municipalities so that we come up with a, a good model where we can be sustainable and actually uh, provide our shareholders with an appropriate return. Turn. So excited about that, excited about that leadership role that we all can play. Uh, the other thing is technology. When we talk about where we're going in the future, I used to say that uh, all companies are people companies, they're human resource companies. Still believe that's absolutely true. The company with the best team wins. We're all technology companies also. And when you walk around the floor today, you'll see the, the, the tools and the technologies that are bringing, um, being brought to bear in the, in the cabs of the trucks on the equipment. That's really important to us because I think that's how we're gonna get that next advancement in safety, make this industry safer for our employees, make it easier to, uh, to work in this industry. And I think by doing that, we attract more people into this great industry. So that, that excites me about where we're going also. I'm sorry. Well, let's um, let's talk a minute about natural disasters because I think it's something that everyone here on the stage is, has been dealing with these past couple years. Two recent big events that that we've dealt with were the fires in California and then the hurricane, specifically Hurricane Harvey. Um, and so my question for you guys, and, and Diana, maybe you could kick us off, is uh, how have these catastrophic events impacted operations, and and how do we manage the resource constraints and and the risk during those events? Sure, so Hurricane Harvey, if there's a good thing about a hurricane, it's that you know it's coming. And so preparation is key. And I have to tell you, our operations team did a phenomenal job of preparing in advance of Harvey. Uh, I can tell you that we didn't lose a single truck during the storm and all the flooding. Uh, we did have one hauling site that flooded, but it just so happened that it was at the base of a landfill and it was in the expansion footprint, so it was eventually going to have to be relocated anyway. So we couldn't control that, but we got lucky there. Uh, but preparation and then people. So we, Bill mentioned this earlier, we, over 50 of our employees were personally impacted by the flooding. And so, you know, some of these employees were our frontline employees. So how are we gonna continue to do our job and to help them, right? Well, to help them, we set up a GoFundMe page. Now we have an official fund for that, but we didn't at the time. So we, we set up a GoFundMe page and everybody, and even our vendors were very generous uh, donating so we could help out our family members. Uh, but outside of that, we have what we call a blue team. So we have people from all over other parts of the country that are on our team that all flock to whichever area needs help. And so with the blue team, we were able to continue servicing their customers when we were allowed to safely get back on the streets. Um, safety. So 
with the, if you can imagine, our landfills were opened longer, our volume was doubling by day in certain spots, and uh, our operations team did a phenomenal job of keeping safety and alertness and awareness at the forefront of people's minds, and so I'm happy to report we didn't have a single lost time injury, which is one of our biggest uh, safety measures. <coughs> So safety is key. Um, contract protection. Bill touched on this earlier too. Um, several floods prior to Harvey, we've kind of got burned. We were picking up everything and things we didn't have to pick up. And so since that time, we've worked into our contracts some protection on what counts as storm debris. And if there is storm debris, there may be different pricing related to it so that we're protected on that side. So I would recommend that as well if you don't already have that into your contracts. And the last thing is public perception. Uh, depending on where you are in the city, the city actually has responsibility for picking up storm debris and not your independent hauler. But your customers don't always know that. All they know is WCA comes down the road all the time. Why are they not picking up this debris? And so I think one takeaway is, is education of your customer of whose responsibility it is and how we're trying to work with them in the city to get it all picked up. If I could just add, add in on that, we, we take a similar approach at Waste Connections where we have a blue team, you know, same, same characteristics, same where, where they're, they're ready, willing, and able to meet whatever need it is uh, across the country. And, and there's typically a lot of people wanting, you know, willing and able to do that. Uh, what we also found in Hurricane Harvey, because we too, being located north of Houston, had several employees who were personally affected and people at the corporate office, it also provided an opportunity for us um, really to build on our teams. What we did at Waste Connections, we had a group from Louisiana come in with a big cooker and we all went out to our hauling yard and to our transfer station and cooked breakfast for the drivers. And we ended up really getting the opportunity to build on the relationships which we would suggest are the most important part of ultimately being successful. Whether it's a disaster or just ordinary day-to-day -day work, those relationships provide the underpinning for ultimately getting the trash picked. Up. So for us, it was it was a great opportunity in spite of the misfortune uh, that others experienced. So uh, Republic and Waste Management, you guys were affected more by the fires last year. Can you talk a little bit about about how those impacted the operations, the business? Yeah, you know, it's it's a matter of being flexible and uh, you know and being able to respond to those types of situations. Here's what's different, right? We used to react to these types of events, especially when it comes to storms, hurricanes, and all of that. Unfortunately, now, we have a playbook. And this time every year, we dust off the playbook to make sure that we know exactly how we're going to react if there's tornadoes, how we're going to react if there's a hurricane. It's sad to say, but it's true. In California, a little bit different. We hadn't really dealt with anything that substantial before, you know, over on the West Coast, but uh, we're able to use a lot of the plays out of the same playbook in order to be able to react. When you're faced with situations like that, those disasters like that, I think, Miriam, what you said about really taking that as an opportunity to build relationships with the communities they, you, that you service, right? They need your service. They need somebody to pick up the waste. They need somebody to handle it in a responsible manner, right? So you've got an opportunity there. 
The other opportunity that you have, and we meant you, got, you mentioned it before, is the relationship that you develop with your employees, right? You can't expect your employees to go out on a route and pick up the trash if they're worried about their families. You've got to take care of their families. You've got to give them a place sure they've got a place to live. You've got to make sure that they have food. You've got to take care of that first. Once you do that, once you demonstrate your willingness to take care of their family, they become part of you, your family and you never lose them. So reacting to those situations is, is critical. I, I can't do anything but echo the comments that have been made by everyone else already. Uh, the only thing that's different for us is we have a green team instead of a blue team. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's uh, let's shift gears and talk a little bit about sustainability because it's all all on the forefront of everyone's mind. We're starting to see regulators and authorities promoting sustainability adoption through forward-looking initiatives. I mean, we're definitely seeing like CNG requirements being written into contract RFPs, and and we're hearing a lot of talk about zero waste initiatives. We're seeing material bans, and so. Um, can you speak a little bit about the way that it's, it's impacting the way that you're managing your asset portfolio? Um, Ned, do you want to start us off on this one? Sure. Um, if John Casella were here, <clears throat> he'd speak about starting the first recycling facility in Vermont in 1977. And, you know, sustainability and recycling and all of these paradigms have been part of who we are since the beginning. And we operate in the northeastern United States. Uh, it's regulated by law to recycle in all the states we operate in. There are also laws that govern organics in many of the states. And we decided years ago that sustainability is not sustainable unless the economic model works. It's not just about being green. There are many people in society and in government agencies and communities who, who don't share that belief always and need to really understand that you're putting real assets, you're making real investments into these programs and you have to generate appropriate returns. And I think you know, we've had the shock to our business in the last several years as China's changed its public policy and um, has no longer allowed uh, mixed paper into their country and changed the contamination standards. And it's a wake-up call to everyone in this industry that programs like recycling need to stand on their own. We're investing many millions of dollars into sustainable infrastructure, and we need to off-take that risk. We're here as service providers to communities and our customers, and they desire many of those services, especially on the sustainability side, but we're not here to take on all of that risk. And I think as you know, a CFO and a finance professional, that's really one of our roles at the table, to make sure that our strategy, our operational programs are balancing risk and returns. And our enterprise risk management program, our number one risk in our ERM program three years ago was recycling. It might actually fall off our list this year in our ERM program. We've done a lot to take what was a huge risk to us and split up pieces among hundreds of thousands of customers. If I give everyone pennies of risk, it's not that meaningful to them, and they can meet their sustainability goals. But for us, it really helps out. We can't take on that risk. So as we look at this paradigm shift and where sustainability is going, we always kind of come back to that same basis. It has to be sustainable economically to be sustainable from a green standpoint long term. 
And to follow up on that, I mean, we're seeing a lot of talk and emphasis on diversion away from landfills. Uh, we may not be seeing a change now, but I mean, is this something that's that's going to change in the future? And, and does it mean that we need to start diversifying our asset portfolio and thinking about landfill alternatives like like organics? Or do you envision things staying pretty consistent as we move forward? Is that back to me? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's taken, you know, 30 to 40 years with recycling to almost make money. And areas like organics are very complicated where, you know, all of a sudden you're going to be sending another truck down a road to pick up organics. Um, you know, if you're doing it right and you're actually educating people, it makes a lot of sense in landfills today. I mean, we have gas collection systems. We're producing clean energy in a lot of instances. And it's hard to break through this wish cycling or this um, perspective that many people have that they just want to have zero waste. And it's really a balanced approach of how can we help a person or an organization or community meet sustainability goals and get educated on it. I think with the um, crisis around recycling, many of the forward-looking organics programs have been kind of muted a bit. What we're seeing and people are, you know, really focused on let's make sure recycling, which is such a big part of our society and what we do, can stand on its own two feet. I think what's really important, at waste management, I think we've done a lot over the last decade to invest in this, this wish cycling or um, more aspirational recycling view and, and zero waste. And whether you look at the Waste Management Phoenix Open as a tremendous example of what you can do uh, to create a zero waste environment, but it doesn't happen easily. It happens with a lot of work and a lot of attention to who we use as suppliers for uh, the forks and plates and cups that we all, you know, use to drink gallons and gallons of beer while at the event. Um, I, and, and so what I think we have to do as leaders in the waste industry and thinking about environmental solutions, Ned's point about environmental sustainability and economic sustainability going hand in hand are absolutely paramount as we think about where this is headed. Um, it, at Waste Management, we're really proud of some of the investments we've made, but we've made some investments that haven't paid off. Um, I'm not sure. Um, so we, we, we've made, um, you know, Jim spoke yesterday about $500 million of investments that we've made looking for that um, landfill alternative technology. And, and we did so at a time when energy prices were much higher and the outlook for these alternative technologies was much brighter. Um, we continue to pursue those alternatives, but we do so in a way that is a little more mindful of being good stewards of our capital. And so we're investing in a way that gives us an eye toward the research that's being done across the world. Um, but what we have found is that we can invest good money in places like Oakland, California, where we have a first-of-its-kind organic Smurf um, that is getting more and more of the waste that is generated um, out of the landfill. And as the largest landfill owner and operator in North America, people often ask, do you really want to support an asset portfolio that moves waste away from the landfill? And we 
would tell you absolutely yes. Our recycling line of business, you know, when, when commodity prices are at 10-year averages, so not even at peaks, our recycling line of business is the second highest return on invested capital that we have in our portfolio, much higher than the landfill. Um, and, and return on invested capital at waste management ultimately is how we make each and every decision on whether we spend an SG&A dollar or a capital dollar. So we're going to continue to pursue things. We recognize that landfills are important and they're an important part of how we uh, meet the service needs of our communities every day. But to Ned's point, they really are fantastic in that we generate energy from them um, that really meets the same needs of the solar industry or the wind industry. And we need to take more credit for that and be really proud of the work that we're doing as a business. You know, the other thing I think that's important when we talk about recycling is that it's a partnership with the consumers, right, with the residents. And we need them to help us also in terms of contamination. So this whole thing about aspirational recycling, that, you know, if I throw it in the recycling bin, then it's going to get recycled, just doesn't work. There's only certain types of materials that we're capable of recycling, even though they might tell you that you might be able to recycle the soup package. We just don't have the, uh, the capability to do that. There's not enough volume to make that uh, um, make sense for us. So making sure that we're reaching out to the residents, making sure that we're educating them, making sure that they understand what goes into the recycling bin. I think people want to do the right thing. They really do, but a lot of times they just don't know. And that's why we've really partnered with our communities to make sure that we're appropriately educating the residents. And we've got a rep website now called the Re uh, RecyclingSimplified.com that we've been talking to a lot of our customers about to help further um, provide them with the knowledge they need to be responsible recyclers. So let's talk a little bit about labor now. Um, Marianne, maybe you can kick us off with this, but we're still seeing the systemic shortage of CDL drivers in the market, and it's, it, it's tough. Um, so what do you think needs to happen both publicly and privately to fix the root cause of the issue, and, and how do we get people into the industry at a younger age and, and keep them? Sure. Well, I, I think we are, we're all aware that there's a shortage of commercial drivers, and that, that's not new, but it's more acute given the low unemployment in the United States. And I think unless or until there's an immigration policy that eases some of the constraints in the United States, I think it's hard to overcome that. Or I guess the other thing that could do it is a slowdown in the economy, but we're not going to wish for a recession to free up labor. So then if you just focus on how do we do a better job as an industry in terms of attracting people, I go back to my original comment, we're a safer industry than we were 20 years ago. We're a less physically demanding industry with the increase in automation. And I think that's not as well understood as it could be. So I'm, I'm sure everyone here, like, like we at Waste Connections, are doing everything we can to, to you know, beef up recruiting, whether it's wage scale adjustments or looking at benefits or training, development. We're all doing everything we can, certainly working with trade schools to become, you know, provide an internship that can be converted into a job, working with helpers to help them get their CDL so they can move from being a helper to move to being a driver. And, and again, I'm sure none of that is different from what you all are doing. At the end of the day, it's not a wage issue, as far as, as we can tell. It's a labor availability issue. And so again, I, I, I think we all need to do our best to attract and retain the best people. And so again, that in, in our case goes back to having a culture where people want to stay with you. And what we find is that 
you know, we're, we look at our, our turnover, we focus on the first year of employment. Because what we know about this industry is once you get people for a year, you've got them for life, right? Everyone's nodding. For us, it's not nine years on average that they stay. So people, once they get into this industry, they realize what a great business it is, what great people there are in this business, and there's tremendous opportunity. We've talked about it being in the best shape it has been for years, Davina's opening remarks, and none, no one would dispute that. The flip side of that is what a resilient business it is when the economy turns. Yeah. And so when people think about that and they talk about the defensive nature of the industry, it's even more compelling. So you know, short answer is I think we're, we're all trying to do the best we can. I think to the extent that we can increase the awareness that would serve us all well as an industry. So are you seeing a lot of competition from the other industries to, to get the CDL drivers? And if so, which, which industries are giving you the most grief? Sure. So the, the most acute would be in areas where you've got a lot of EMP you know, drilling activity. So you, we've all seen that really over the last five years, right, where episodically you'll see a surge and people get pulled away from much higher rates for drivers and diesel technicians as well. So again, you do what you can to combat that. And then again, in, in a low unemployment environment, in some of our markets, it can be people not necessarily driving, but going to the construction business. They just have other alternatives. And let's face it, this is a tough industry. We have people who accept the job and then don't come after the first day because they realize how early 3.30 in the morning is. <laughs> Diana, can you speak a little bit about what WCA is doing to attract more CDL drivers? Yeah, sure. Although Marianne stole a lot of my comments on that. you got to go first. <laughs> but we do. <laughs> but we do. Uh, have pockets where our district managers are teaming up with um, commercial driving schools and trying to get uh, students out of those schools right off the bat and uh, get them into our program. And same thing with helpers in one of our other districts. We have at least three helpers that have been converted to, they've gotten their CDLs and are now drivers. And uh, in fact, I was on a site visit the weekend before one of those helpers was about to take his CDL, and so I followed up with him the next week and the next week, and he finally got it, so it was, it was really cool. Um, but if, aside from WCA, just thinking of the industry as a whole, you know, at the breakfast this morning, there was one female driver of the year, Diana Heath. If we can find a way to find more Diana Heaths, I think that's a game changer. It opens up the pool of candidates. Like we know there are women CDL drivers out there. We just have to figure out how to attract them and retain them. And I think if we can do that, we'll be set. You know, I think it's interesting to that point. Um, Warren Buffett's actually known for a quote, and I won't get it exactly right, but he commented on the fact that his sister is actually far brighter than he is, and that he thinks that the outlook for the U.S. is very, very bright because we're getting to a point where we're unleashing uh, the power of 100% of our workforce, not just the 50% that we've kind of embraced in decades of, of the past. And I think our industry is ripe for that kind of advancement as well and it's really exciting. I, I think one of the things that we have to think a, a great deal about is how to take um, the enthusiasm sitting in the awards breakfast and, and recognizing a driver who's celebrating 41 years driving 
trucks um, for recology, I believe, is quite remarkable. And um, I, I can't tell you how many stories we hear from our drivers where their fathers were drivers, their uncles were drivers, and they've been convinced that this is a line of business that is good and, and consistent and there's some stability uh, and there's a family-type atmosphere in this work environment and in our industry that is unlike many others. We actually care about our employees and um, if we can do something to bottle and spread that kind of um, enthusiasm about the job because if a father wants his son to uh, come and work within our industry too, what better advocacy uh, could you really ask for? And we need to be our best advocates for other men and women across North America to come join the ranks. You know, I don't think that we do a good enough job marketing ourselves, and I think, you know, that's what I heard you guys say. If you look at, once again, the enthusiasm in the room today, and when you have grown men and women up in front of hundreds of people crying because they're so passionate about what they do, you just can't bottle that. I mean, we've got the secret sauce. We just don't use it, right? We don't market ourselves well enough. So if you think about millennials, you think about the next generation, what do they want out of a career? Uh, not necessarily a lot of student debt, right, uh, that they have to pay off, but uh, a career where they can make good money, right? That's We offer that, right? And so one of our operators, that one operator of the year, he had his two sons there, and one is a border patrol agent, and the other one is, has a successful franchise business, right? So very successful individuals. You can make good money in this industry. Um, career pathing, right? You can start out as a helper and become a driver and then a supervisor, and then you can go up the ranks and you, be, you can become CEO one day. And people say to me, well, that will never happen. And then I say, well, let me introduce you to the CEO of our company because he started driving a truck. So you have that, that, that piece of it also. Uh, and the other thing is that the younger generation, they want a purpose in life. What's your purpose? What better purpose than to protect Mother Earth, protect the blue planet, right? That's what we do, right? We pick up the garbage and we handle it in a safe and responsible manner. We, we've got all of the right tools here. We've got all the right marketing collateral. We, we, we just haven't, we haven't done that yet. We need to do a better job. Absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about technology for a minute, and Chuck, maybe you could start us off with this. So we've never really been heavy into the R&D space just because of the nature of the industry and the business, but with all this new technology that's being introduced, I mean, we're, we're seeing things about onboard computing, we're hearing talk about autonomous vehicles. Um, do you see that changing, and, and how will that change the way that we think about, about investments and, and when we see these inflection points with technology? Yeah, I don't know that we're going to see a huge inflection point. I don't know that there's going to be like a light switch that's going to get turned, right? But every year that you come to Expo, you see a little bit more technology make its way into the cab of the truck. You see a little bit more technology in terms of the bodies, a little bit more technology in terms of the, uh, the, uh, the heavy equipment. The, the dozer that um, we ended up giving to the operator of the year, it's got a generator on it, right? So there's a, it's, it has a diesel engine, but it operates the generator, right? And what they're telling me, it's 35% less fuel that's consumed on that, that piece of equipment. These are the types of uh, changes that we're going we're to see slowly over over time, including the connectivity between the cab and the customer, which I think is going to become more and more important, and being able to make uh, additional strides in that area because of, because of the investments in software. So I don't know that there's going to be a huge inflection point, but two things for sure. 
the industry itself will get more complex over time, right, as there's more technology that's brought to bear, and it'll become more capital intensive, right? Those of you who have been around for a long time, you could, used to be able to buy a, a rear loader for what, 100,000, 150,000? And now if you look at a CNG, automated side load, it's what, 330,000? A very capital intensive business. Um, so it's the, the, the industry is changing. So do you anticipate it changing the way our relationship is with our vendors? Are we going to have to be a lot more collaborative as we introduce some of this new technology? Yeah, so collaborative is an interesting term. If you um, follow our CEO around today, uh, when he's yelling in somebody ear, someone's ear, you might say that that's collaboration. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, collaborating, yes, and we've got a collaboration that we're doing with Mac uh, on an EV vehicle, but also demanding. And demanding, we talked about safety before, and the fact that you know the we don't have in the cab of the truck right now safety mechanisms that you have in your cars, the lane change warnings and the impact warning. It's wrong. It's just wrong. We should have that. We should have that first, right? Well, why don't we have that? Well, manufacturers haven't offered it, but maybe we haven't pushed hard enough. So I think that, that, I think that you're going to see us as an industry be much more demanding, especially as it relates to, to being safe and uh, into making our job easier for our employees. Could, could I hop in? Of course. So um, generally, one thing I've noticed about the waste industry since I joined it years ago is how hard it is to do business with us. Um, you know, on the one hand, we're great. We want to give every customer what they want. But our service offerings, in many cases, aren't that standard. So you look into the back office and you look into the other part of technology, what's running all of our companies and our systems and our IT platforms, they're very, very flexible, but they don't interact that well with modern-day databases and how you can get better customer-facing tools. And I woke up about six years ago and realized that maybe 50% of every IT dollar we were spending was trying to back integrate to 25 or 30 year old database tools and billing systems and the like. And I said, stop, we need to rebuild the foundation because if we're going to truly interact with our customers in a different manner, interact with our trucks and move forward as an industry, we need to put new technology in the back office. Uh, we started two years ago with a new financial ERP and we went with a cloud-based ERP. And my perspective was closing the books is the same at every single company. There's nothing different. There's no secret sauce. So we're on NetSuite in the cloud. We can't touch the code. We don't own the code. We can't customize a single thing. We can just configure it. And we were able to implement a whole new financial ERP in 11 months on time, on budget. Now we're moving to more complicated parts, customer-facing, dynamic routing in the trucks. But it's those foundational elements where if we're going to truly give the next generations who just want to hop on their iPhone and click a couple buttons to order service, change service, interact with the truck, we need to change foundationally many of our own technology systems uh, to really get to that next step. Well, I want to make sure we leave plenty of time for questions so everybody can pick your guys' brains. But, but before we, we wrap up with these questions, um, I just want to point out that three of our five panelists today are women, which is, I think, incredible for any industry, but specifically the waste industry, and something that I don't think would have been possible 10 years ago. And for me... <laughs> As 
woman at the start of her waist career, it's, it's definitely, um, it's definitely inspiring to see. So I just want to ask the women to take a moment to speak to, to some of the challenges they faced and, and talk to some of the, the, the things that have really led to your personal development and your professional development over the years. I'll start. Um, from a challenge perspective, I, I think what I would say most is that this business is about people. And as a woman, you would often be the only woman in a boardroom, in a conference room for a meeting as part of a working group. And that can be difficult because the people that we see as mentors and as the people who are our lifeline when we need help are often people we identify most with and that can be difficult in this business and so um, having to, to find people who are willing to advocate for you and support you when you may not look like them, think like them, dress like them, um, you know, was it a bit of a challenge for me growing up in this business. Um, it, it's exciting to be able to pay forward um, all of those opportunities that I've been given. Uh, Jim Fish, our CEO, has been a huge advocate of mine, and, and I wouldn't be here without his support and mentorship, and, and I can't uh, tell you enough how much we all have to take responsibility for ensuring that the people who are around us know that they're appreciated, know that uh, the work they do matters, and, and know that when they show up and give us their best, we're going to give us their give them our best as well. So I, I, you know, from my perspective, I've had the good fortune of of working with a lot of terrific mentors and. And frankly, never really felt like being a woman was a disadvantage in this business or in financial services where I first started out of school. And I remember talking to Ron Middlestadt when I joined 13 years ago, and he said, but, you know, you really want to keep working in the garbage business? And I said, my first job out of college, I was in a training program on Wall Street where I worked on the floor of the stock exchange, which is like working in a men's locker room. <laughs> and he said, you're set, don't <laughs> So all kidding aside, I've, I've had really good fortune. And I think for me, it's about being the best that I can be, do, doing the best that I can, learning as much as I can, and not about being a woman, but about being a professional, just like everyone else trying to do the best you can and trying to advance and build those relationships that help you do that. And if it happens to be other women, so be it. And if it's men, that's okay too. <laughs> So, you know, I've had a couple of bosses along the way that had daughters that were my age, but daughters that were not ambitious in the way I was. So I think they had trouble understanding that I had, I wasn't their daughter and I wasn't just going to school to get married or whatever, you know? And so that has had been a challenge a couple of times in my career. Um, something, something to think about you guys out there. <laughs> What else, Davina? We've got lots oh. of stories. So, <laughs> so Di Diana and I, for those of you who don't know, um, actually started at Waste Management within four months of each other, I think, and grew up. I recruited her, just for did. the record. <laughs> um, so we grew up in this industry together um, and had similar bosses. And her comments about uh, some of the men we worked for viewing us as their daughters couldn't be more true. And um, I actually have a war story 
of sorts that is important. It sounds like, Marianne, you got a level of support that I didn't see early on in my days because I, I have to tell you, I, I was actually told by um, my first boss in the industry that I needed to go through something hard like a divorce to be able to put my job into perspective because I, I clearly cared way too much about work as a 20-something-year-old lady. And, um, and I have to tell you, I, I know that he would have never said that to one of my male colleagues. Um, so the challenges have been real and they shouldn't be discounted. And I think whether it be a woman in the industry or a man in the industry, we all have a role in making the work environment a comfortable one, a safe one, and a place that we can just all be our best selves each and every day. So I think we want to open it up to the audience for questions now. If you want to raise your hands. We have a microphone coming to you. Thank you. Yonus Georgescu and the Voice Foundation. I have a question and uh, maybe a small exercise of imagination. Let's teleport ourselves in 2013, in 11 years. We have recycling, 75% rate in the United States. And we look back to 2019. What we should do in 2019, in 2020, to bring more trust and transparency into the system in order to distribute evenly the responsibility to bring recycling to that 75% that recycling rate. How can we convince consumers, uh, producers, manufacturers, other stakeholders to contribute operational and financially to the system in order to achieve our goal? Can we do this? Well, I'm happy to start. I think, Ned, what you described is exactly what we need to do as an industry, make sure that people understand the costs of recycling. Mm -hmm. I, you know, the, the approach we take is we're happy to provide whatever service someone's interested in. There's a cost associated with it, and where we find ourselves right now is we can control the types of services we provide, but if there's no end market for the recyclables, it's to no good, right? So there are already municipalities in California which have diversion targets, just you know, they don't need to fast forward. They're already diverting 70%, but the question is, is diversion recycling? If there's no end market, right. then it doesn't, you know, we can do everything we can on the front end. So I guess we, to answer your question, we as a society need to be encouraging the development of those end markets so other people need to be making the investments to make that happen. I... Chuck said it earlier, you know, people want to do the right thing. And so I think we as an industry just have to continue to do a good job because I think we've all worked very hard to communicate and educate. I, I think that this is a business model that is on its way to being economically sustainable as well as environmentally sustainable. And if recycling levels are at 75% in 2030, we will have built the asset network that will respond to that kind of volume. I, I think in order for us to get there, it's about education and communication because people do want to do the right thing. Uh, back in the summer of 2015, I'm known to work really late at night, and my brain starts working even better after midnight. And I had this epiphany moment that 
we pick up people's garbage, we pick up their recycling, and we bring it to our processing facilities and we sell the recyclables. But we also take in people's recyclables to our processing facilities from other companies or municipalities. Well, we had built a really flexible model at that point in time that shared the risk or passed the risk back to our customers. But I realized that we had done none of that when we picked up households or businesses. We charged a flat rate every single month, and we didn't change that when commodity prices changed. So I started to look at the correlation between commodity prices and what we charged our hauling companies for recycling. Mm -hmm. And there was no correlation. We weren't changing our mm -hmm. prices. Mm -hmm. So I thought I'd maybe pulled data incorrectly. So the next morning I asked guys on my team who are smarter than I am to take a look at it, and it was true. And it's funny how you always learn new things. And I had been CFO for several years, and I just missed it that we weren't resetting something as simple as transfer pricing every single month between our recycling facilities and our hauling companies. We did that. Well, that's simple. But how do you go back to a consumer? We created a f kind of like a fuel surcharge for recycling. We call it the SRA fee. Every single month, the sustainability recycling adjustment fee, it flexes up or down. So we were able to pass back to the end consumer a piece of risk a correct pricing formula to adjust to take that risk off our shoulders. And we did that in a really fast manner, but that's the type of forward thinking where we need to shake up how we're pricing our customers, how we're dealing with risk and responsibility in order to get to much, much higher levels. Because as an industry, we're service providers. We're not here to take on the risk. But that's one like capsule. If we're gonna go to higher levels, we gotta do more of that. We have more questions? Hi, I'm Jan Dell. I'm an independent engineer with The Last Beach Cleanup. Congratulations to all of your companies. I have a question for each one of you. And first of all, um, your commitment to environment, health, safety um, has come through loud and clear. On your websites, you have code of conduct around business ethics. Your fiduciary responsibility to your shareholders has come out loud and clear in your desire to have a product and share risk, have a profit. So my question to you is, now that we've seen more than 25 documentaries of what happens to plastic waste in countries with poor waste management, when will each one of your companies make a public commitment that you will not export to those countries or to intermediate countries or to brokers who will sell plastic waste to those countries where we know there is child labor and open burning of plastic waste? I can just say at Waste Management, all of our plastic is sold domestically, so I'm proud to say that we're complying with what you've asked for today. Yeah, we're, we're, we're the same way. Yeah. It all, it's all domestic. 100% of our plastic's domestic as 100% well. of our recyclables are going domestically. There's no demand from Asia anymore, and so you found the domestic markets are absorbing it. There's no value in it, but they're absorbing it. Agree. Yes, same here. I have a friend who's a reporter for the New York Times from college, and he called me up about the plastic recycling crisis a year ago to do some background on a story. I was like, you're missing it. You know, like the story in our business is around paper and cardboard. It makes up 65 to 70% of the recycling stream, and the markets have evaporated because of China's public policy. 
And what was truly making something sustainable is no longer sustainable for all of us in society. We're doing a lot of good with recycling. Plastics, I do recognize around the world there are issues, but for the U.S. solid waste infrastructure, finding sustainable markets for paper, cardboard, is very, very important economically. And, and they, you know, there's been a lot of news stories on that, and it's not, I don't think it's a genesis back to the states. I think that's overseas. I think a big piece of this story is about the um, manufacturer's commitments to use recycled content as well. And that's one of the pieces of the equation that we don't talk enough about. And as we see people who are manufacturing single-use products using virgin material because economically it's cheaper for them to use virgin material than it is recycled material, that piece of the equation has to be fixed as well. I think we have time for one or two more questions. Yes, hi, uh, good morning everyone. I'm um, Drago Stefanescu from Endo Base Foundation. I have a question for you guys because you mentioned plastic as well as cardboard. Uh, we all know uh, glass, how challenging it is these days, uh, how tough it is for all you guys to recycle glass. Um, my question to you is if you guys sustain negative costs and if you see any solutions into the crisis with glass these days, as we know a lot of municipalities, they are reluctant to even pick up uh, when it comes to glass these days. Thank you. From our perspective, um, you know, glass is, is not something that there is an economically viable solution from a recycling perspective. Above and beyond that, though, I view it as a safety issue. Um, in particular, you, you can just think of uh, the workers who are on our recycling lines every day who are have to, having to sift through uh, the material that comes in the front door and, and glass breaks. And so the safety hazard associated associated with managing glass in our single stream facilities is one of the things that's extremely important to us working to manage. Yeah, I think when you step back at it, look at, look at it also uh, in terms of recycling glass, when you use just as much energy to recycle glass as opposed to making new glass, if the carbon footprint is exactly the same, then why are we doing it? And I think for a lot of municipalities, they uh, grade their diversion based upon weight. Well, what's the heaviest thing in your recyclables? It's in my case, it's the wine bottles, right? <laughs> um, so I think, that once again, it comes back to education and making sure that we are doing a good job educating the consumer on what can be recycled responsibly and uh, what, what can't, where, you know, where, where there isn't an end market for the material. And we just learned that we have another thing in common because wine bottles would definitely be the heaviest <laughs> thing in life. <laughs> Hi. Um, I've heard a lot of references to wish cycling and people want to do the right thing and then also references to communication and education. So I feel like there is a big gap about for the consumer on what can be recycled and what can't be and how it should be and it differs every place. So what communication efforts do you all do to help educate the consumer? We launched a program in the last few years called Recycle Better. I, everyone has their own kind of set of communication materials for our customers, municipalities. But, but sometimes it really comes down to a little bit of a punitive approach. I hate to say that, but you know, one of our customers is a 
a bit upset with us because their rates have gone up significantly from their last contract five years ago to, to today. And what we've tried to do is build a mechanism of if you can get the contamination out of the stream, we'll charge you less. This is a partnership. You can't just send us 25, 30% garbage in your recyclables and think it's fine. We'll provide the materials, we'll provide education dollars, but, but this isn't a one-way street. And we probably all have the same struggles where you know, we're doing our part and we need municipalities and businesses and others to take this even more seriously. So we have a recycle off and recycle right platform. Um, it sounds like everyone has mm -hmm. their own. And so the, the messaging and communication is important, but I think Ned's exactly right. We've seen good traction in a reduction in contamination levels as we've rolled out contamination fees. Contamination had increased from, if you call it low teens, to up to about 25% here recently. And we've seen the rate of contamination actually start to decline for the first time and we really do think that it's the education but then making the consumer responsible for understanding the impact that they're having on the environmental and economic viability of this business. And then if you look at uh, locations that are a little bit more mature when it comes to recycling, so think about the west coast uh, up into uh, Washington and California where it's been around for a while, they're very good at it, right? So the streams that we're getting there are, are, are very clean uh, relative to where we're getting uh, streams in, in municipalities where recycling is, is newer and there's not as much education uh, in terms of uh, uh, at the school level. I would agree with all of that, and I think the longest lead time is on those smaller municipal contracts where there isn't a mechanism, to, to your point, Ned, to impose a fee. Uh, you know, look, we've had a relationship long-term with the municipality. We never called them when OCC was at $200 a ton. Yep. They're not sure why we're calling now that it's 55, <laughs> right? So we, in some cases, need to wait out those contracts, and, and frankly, I don't think those municipalities have an incentive to educate people or clean up the stream. We can try to do it, but until their rates go up, people don't fully understand it. Well, I think we're nearing the end of our time, but I just want to take a moment to thank all of our panelists for getting together today. It's, it's great to have all this brain power all in one place. So um, thank you for taking your time. Though.